Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Psalm number 2. Psalm 2. And we're going to read this whole psalm together. And then we're also going to turn to uh, the book of Revelation and chapter 19. Revelation 19, reading from verse 6. First of all, then, uh, Psalm number 2. And we read the whole psalm together. Uh, a number of weeks ago, I, was, I preached from Psalm 1, and we'll be uh, coming back again to the Psalms when I come back from my break and looking at a few more of them over the summer. And I mentioned a few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 1 that Psalms 1 and 2 together, uh, they're really like a, a set of double doors that open up into the rest of the Psalter. Uh, there are some similarities between these two Psalms. They're, they're, they stand alone as well. They are, uh, their own, uh, they, they are unique as well, but there are similarities between them and they, and they open up the doors for us into the rest of the Psalter. And so we, we looked at Psalm 1 last month and we saw how it is a Psalm promising blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not uh, in the counsel of the wicked and, confer- and it compares the, the life of obedience to God's word to that of like a, a tree planted by streams of water flourishing. Uh, and so Psalm 1 is very much written from the perspective, the human perspective as we journey through this life, as we give obedience to God and his word. And then Psalm 2 lifts us, as we'll see today, to an entirely different perspective as the Psalter opens up for us. So Psalm 2, uh, let's read together God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Then we turn also to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, and we read from verse 6. Almost the very, the very end of the Bible, just a couple of chapters before the, the end of the Scriptures. Revelation 19, and we read from verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. This is God's word. Please turn back with me in your Bibles to Psalm number 2, which we'll come to study this morning. And quite simply, our theme from Psalm 2 is the Messiah King. The Messiah King. I thought I'd seen everything in this job, but I've never seen the like of this. That was the summary of BBC political reporter Gareth Gordon last Thursday lunchtime. Even by the standards of Northern Ireland politics, it was an incredible day as the leader of the biggest party in our local government was forced to resign after just 21 days. The pundits gave their verdicts and likely relishing the drama and hubris of it all. But as much as we might have been laughing in amazement at what was going on, It was the latest reminder to us, uh, uh, the latest in a string of reminder in the last few years, in fact, that human leaders come and go very quickly. They rise up one day, they're brought tumbling down the next. And it was a reminder too that we are living in a time of an increasing lack of stable, accepted, respected leadership in any sector of our society. There has been a revolving door for several years now of prime ministers, first ministers and presidents. No one seems to last very long before crisis or scandal sees them off. Perhaps these last few years have left you longing for someone who can do a good job in leadership. Someone to take charge and sort out all the chaos that seems to be around us. Perhaps as we watch or listen to our news, we feel somewhat discouraged that there just doesn't seem to be a leader that we can trust or a leader who can get a virus under control or who can get hospital waiting lists under control or who can get climate change under control. It's increasingly clear that most of our leaders have no control over those things at all. There seems to be no one that we can depend on. Or is there? As we enter through the gateway to the Psalter today via Psalm 2, the the signal truth that the Psalm wants to impress upon us is that there is a perfect, honourable, powerful, good King. Psalm 1, as I said, opens the Psalter from a human perspective, uh, showing us the only two possible paths for us to follow, the path of blessing that leads to life or the path of sin that leads to death. 
And then Psalm 2 gives us the world from God's perspective. And it shows us one king ruling over all the nations of the whole world every moment. Psalm 2 shows us that the great hope for the Christian is not supposed to be in any particular national government or flag, be it the tricolor, the union flag, the EU flag. The great hope of every Christian in this land is the ruling, reigning Messiah King. And so this is a timely psalm for us today. In times of crisis and chaos, there's no need to get bitter or fearful or shrill or angry. There's no need for Christians to throw up our hands and say, oh, what's going on? This psalm makes very clear to us today, we know what's going on. Our king is reigning. He is on his throne. He is in control. Four things to bring to your attention from Psalm 2 this morning. First of all, quite simply, that we have a king. We have a king. There is no one on this earth, black, white, British, Irish, ruler or citizen, who does not have a king ruling over them. Look at the start of verse 6. God is speaking and he says, I have set my king on Zion. In verse 2, he's described as the anointed one. And the word there for anointed one in the original, it's, it's the same word for Messiah. It's the word that's also used in the New Testament. <clears throat> excuse me. It's translated in the New Testament, Christ or chosen one. Now, of course, King David of Israel, the, the human author of this psalm, uh, he, he might have been thinking of himself to an extent when he wrote these words. He was God's chosen one. He was God's Christ in the Old Testament. Christ in the sense of just a, the, the, the role that he held as king, as chosen ruler. But remember that these words were sung and read by the Jews long after King David had gone. David conquered all his enemies. He ruled for 40 years. He was a great and strong and mighty king, but he died. One day, like every other human ruler, he was gone and he stayed gone. King Solomon succeeded King David. He became the next anointed one. His wisdom made Israel a wealthy and prosperous nation, the envy of the world for a time. But Solomon wasn't perfect. And his sinful failure set the nation on a downward spiral. And Israel's human kings really got worse and worse as you read through the books of First and Second Kings. And it got to the point where God as punishment sent nations into Israel to bit by bit strip away their treasure and strip away their army and strip away their land. And Israel was almost completely destroyed. And so generation after generation <coughs> sang this psalm and their expectation remained that there would be one great anointed king better than all the rest, even better than David and Solomon themselves. And then in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, along comes Jesus of Nazareth and he's been baptized. He's set apart for service by John the baptizer and Jesus begins his ministry by declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And those words of Jesus, friends, essentially announcing himself as king is what he was doing. And he, and he said on another occasion that the kingdom of God is, quote, in the midst of you. 
In other words, that Jesus himself personifies the kingdom. Uh, that the essence of the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus Christ, friends, is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2. He is God's anointed one. And we're not just left to fill in the blanks for ourselves in that sense. We're not just left to infer that or to, to guess that from our reading of, of the Bible. Uh, Psalm 2 is used at least twice by the apostles in the book of Acts uh, to remind themselves and to show to others that Jesus is the anointed king. In Acts chapter 4 verse 25, uh, the believers gather together for a prayer meeting. It's actually the first prayer meeting that they have after some of the apostles are persecuted for the first time. Acts chapter 4 25, and they quote the words of this psalm in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles understood this psalm as pointing forward to their King Jesus. And we see something similar in Acts 13, verse 33. We have a king. We have a king, and his name is Jesus, and he is reigning. And as much as people would resist the notion today that they need anyone to rule over them and tell them what to do, it remains the case that there is something within human beings that tells us that we are made for a king. Or at least that we're made to make much. We are made to, to give glory and attention and praise to someone or something greater than ourselves. In the first Avengers movie that came out a few years ago, uh, the villain is Loki, and like all the villains, like all the bad guys, Loki wants to take over the world. And at one point he stands before a crowd of people in the street and he bellows at them, kneel before me. He says, this is your natural state. It's the unspoken truth of humanity, he says, that you were made to be ruled. In the end, he says, you will always kneel. Now, he might be the villain, but Loki is right. The unspoken truth of humanity is that we are made to be ruled, that someone or something within human beings, or something within human beings rather, it demands that we, that we look away from ourselves, that we, that we look for greatness, that we look for goodness, that we look for something praiseworthy that is greater and bigger than us. You'll see an example of this right now. We're in the midst of the Euro 2020 football tournament. And whether you care two hoots about football or not, and I'm sure some of you don't, but if you turn on your TV at the minute several times in the day, you can find people talking about the greatness and the, the skill and the strength of people like Ronaldo or Mbappe. For some of you, it might not be football or sport, but there might be some musician that we just consider bigger and better than every other musician. And they even get referred to as the king or the queen. For some people it's whoever's inventing the, the, the greatest piece of technology. Some people it's the latest phone or, or the latest innovative car or device and we talk about it, we're in awe of it, we can't believe the, the ingenuity and the craftsmanship and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the effort that has gone into these things. And some people even get referred to as the king of their industry or of their craft. And it's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily sinful to, to, uh, to speak in glowing terms or to, just to, to enjoy, to celebrate these kinds of things. It can, it can veer into idolatry and worship in some cases. 
But friends, it it shows us that it's natural within us to look for someone or something greater than ourselves. Of course, some people, instead of looking beyond themselves, just look within themselves for greatness. Their only king or queen is themselves. My body, my life, they would say. Well, this psalm tells us in no uncertain terms that there is one king above all these other kings, queens, rulers that we have. He is more mighty. He is more powerful. He is greater by far than all of them combined. His name is Jesus. Whether you love him or not, he is your king. Whether our nation acknowledges him as such or not, he is our king. We have a king. You have a king. The second thing to notice from this psalm is that our king is hated. Our king is hated. If you look at verses 1 and 2, what's the attitude of the nations to this king? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. The picture here is of the nations of the world fully united, fully agreed on where they stand in relation to this king. It's very hard for us to imagine our various political leaders in Northern Ireland agreeing about anything at the minute, never mind getting the five parties to agree. It seems as though the people within the parties can't even agree at present. But the psalmist here imagines a meeting of the United Nations, if you like, in verses 1 and 2, all totally on the same page, all completely united. What is it that has brought them together? What common cause have they finally found to bring them together? Well, friends, it is their hatred of God's king. Just look at the language. They plot, they take counsel, they set themselves. Those are all uh, outward actions based on inward beliefs, inward convictions. They have set themselves. They have taken their position. They have decided where they stand in relation to this king. Ralph Davis in his commentary says, This is what happens when the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers goes international. So in Psalm 1 you have that language of the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers. People gathering together, people chatting and gossiping and plotting and scheming together. Ralph Davis says Psalm 2 is putting that on a, on a global scale, an international scale. The nations of the world gathered against God's king. And they recognize the authority that God has over them. Verse 3 says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Um, if you remember or if you've seen pictures of years gone by when Farmers would use a yoke of oxen to do their plowing. And that's the picture here that they want the, the yoke, the, the yoke bar. Uh, it's, as if they're, it's as if they're under the control of this king and they want the yoke off them. They want to be free from him, from his control. These men know deep down. These rebelling nations know that they will ultimately answer to the king, to the Messiah king, to God's king. They're upset because they know deep down that they are yoked and controlled and owned by him. 
And that's what all the nations of our world, friends, have in common. This restless, this, this restlessness, this desire to get the yoke of God off their backs. The various nations of our world might seem very different on the surface and in a strange sort of way and in a desire to show respect and, and tolerance to, to every uh, tribe and nation of the world today. In fact, sometimes the, the differences end up being exaggerated out of all proportion. But many people would proudly declare, for example, today that the United Kingdom or Ireland are, are very different nations from China, for example, or North Korea or Afghanistan. We would say we're a, we're a tolerant, we're a democratic, we're a, a modern, re- respecting society compared to the governments that rule those nations. But under the surface, friends, we share the most important characteristic in common with those nations. We are all in rebellion against the king the united kingdom with its with our disregard for god's will and command regarding marriage and the sanctity of life our celebration of what is perverted we've declared our rebellion against the king and china with its ridiculous worship of one political party and its horrendous abuse of people in general and christians in particular that's another form of rebellion against God's king. We could go on and on. Whether through tyranny or immorality, friends, the nations are united. The nations are together against God and against his anointed. And ultimately, you and I, by nature and choice, we are in rebellion against God by nature. We're born with a restless desire to get out from under his yoke to burst his bonds apart and to go our own way. One writer has said, the central conviction of hell is, I am free to make my own decisions. I am free to make my own decisions. Nelson Mandela was fond of that poem, Invictus became a movie with the same name a number of years ago. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is the battle cry of the rebel nations of the world, friends. I am in charge of me, not the king who made me. I'd be better off out from under his yoke, going my own way. And hell is full of people who have chosen to do that. And as the psalmist looks at this scene of restless, rebellious nations, friends, look at the question he asks in verse 1. Why? Why? Why are we rebelling against a God who has made us? Who, has given us, who gives us our purpose in life, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Why are we rebelling against a God we cannot defeat anyway, who we have been made to worship and enjoy? Ralph Davis says, What suicidal nincompoops to be possessed of such livid rage against the God who rules. Some people, their rebellion against God is very obvious. They've even written books about it, like Richard Dawkins or Stephen Fry. Others, quietly, and, and this is probably more the case for most people around us, other people are quietly just seething against God as they live their own in their own little cocoons, drowning out the gospel warnings with screen time and me time and online shopping time. It's all rebellion, friends, no matter what form it takes. 
Where do you stand in relation to this king? Do you realize that you have a king? Do you submit to the king? Or do you hate the king? And if you do hate him, what's your plan for when you finally see him? What's your plan for when the day comes that he calls you to explain your hatred and your rebellion and you're living your life as if you're answerable to no one but yourself? All of us are born as rebels. By nature, we have this resistance to our king. We ignore him. We fight against him. Is that what you're still doing today? Are you resisting the yoke of the king? Psalm 2 asks you, why? Why? Because the third thing to notice about this king today is that he cannot be toppled. Our king may be hated, but our king cannot be toppled. He cannot be defeated. And we see this in verses 4 to 9. What's God's reaction to the the rebellion of the nations? Verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs. As far as I'm aware, this is the only time in the Bible that we're told of God laughing. But it's not a laugh of amusement as such. He's laughing because the rebellion against him is so pathetic. It's feeble. The question at the beginning, why? There's shock and astonishment in it. God is the king to whom these people owe their lives. And yet they're whispering and conspiring together as if they can get rid of him. It's laughable. But look at God's response to these rebels. He doesn't laugh for long. Verse 5. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Sooner or later, the laughing and the rebelling is going to stop. And God's holy fury is going to come down on these rebels. God says in verse 6, I have set my king on Zion. And so you see how the battle lines are drawn up in this psalm. It says the rulers have set themselves, the kings of the earth have set themselves on one side and God has set his Messiah on the other side. And then in verse 7, the speaker changes. And in verse 7, it's this king himself. It's the, it's the Messiah himself who speaks and who says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's really the key verse in this psalm. Boys and girls, that's the verse that's on your sheet today. And it would be good for you to memorize this verse Because it's a verse that's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. You you are my son today, I have begotten you. That's the language, friends, of God the Father, God the Son, working together. Planning from before time itself about what they would do. About the plan of salvation that they would have. And the answer that they would make to sinful rebels. And here in Psalm 2 verse 7 we see a, a little preview of God the Father sending God the Son into the world, onto Jerusalem to establish his kingdom, to fight against rebels. And the Messiah King cannot be toppled. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is God the Father speaking and he says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your possession. Verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like pottery. So much for the feeble attempts of rebellious nations to topple the king. 
There was one night where they thought they'd achieved it. Religious and political leaders conspired together in Jerusalem and they thought that they had toppled the king of the Jews. He stood before them silent, allowing their plots to form, not answering their wicked and deceitful accusations against him and allowing them ultimately to nail him to a cross. They murdered the king. But three days later, he rose again. And while we who are following him now follow his example of preaching a gospel of grace and good news that sin can be forgiven and rebellion can be stopped, nonetheless, friends, this king is going to return with a rod of iron in his hand, as we read about in Revelation 19. And for those rebels who are still at large on that day when he returns, he will dash them to pieces like pottery with one swipe of his scepter. Dear friend, let me ask you, are you in rebellion against this king? Are there attitudes in your life? Is there a pattern of behavior and lifestyle that you're involved in that this king has said to you in his word he doesn't want? He wants something better for you than your sin. He wants something better for you than your rebellion. He wants to give you a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light compared to the yokes that you're tempted to put yourself under. Don't try to resist him any longer. We might hate the king, we might try to topple the king, but the last thing to notice from this psalm is that we need the king. We need the king. Uh, And we see that in verses 10 to 12 at the end of the psalm. Loki, the villain from the movie, is exactly right. We were made to bow. We are made to worship. It is our natural state. The problem is that we bow to the wrong people and the wrong objects, hoping that they will give us some sense of satisfaction or joy or purpose in our lives. Maybe some of you have put yourselves under the yoke of academic or workplace success. You're determined to create your own kingdom through your own hard graft, out in the fields or in the office or in the classroom, but that yoke is going to be too heavy for you. Maybe you live under the yoke of keeping up appearances, hoping and praying that you've done enough good deeds and attended enough worthwhile meetings or worship services to satisfy king moralism. And king moralism never gives you any assurance, though, that you've done enough, and that's an increasingly heavy yoke that you're bearing. Maybe some of you think that you're not under anybody's yoke and that you can just live however you like, but in your more honest moments, you know that you're not really getting any more satisfied the more work you do or the more entertainment you stream or the more hobbies you enjoy. Your yoke is weighing you down. We need the king. We need the king, friends, because his yoke, he does have a yoke, but his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. He is a good and gracious king. He's not just going to keep putting on more and more weight on our backs. He's actually going to lead us toward true freedom and true joy and true life. Winston Churchill famously said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. But actually the best form of government, the best way for us to be ruled as nations and as individuals, is by this all-wise, all-knowing, 
gracious king because his yoke is easy and his burden is light and that yoke is going to lead to true freedom and true life if a young person has an exceptional talent for music for example and eventually becomes a world-class musician it's because their parents and their teachers put them under a yoke a burden the burden of daily practice the burden of working for hours at a time on refining their skills on improving on learning the yoke of sacrificing time with friends or doing other things that their friends are doing so that they can really master their craft and a child at times the child might even resent that yoke but it will lead to their flourishing it will lead to their mastering that gift that they have perhaps even on a worldwide scale all because they were put under the yoke and that's what our king does for us friends he puts us under the yoke of obedience but it's because that obedience will lead to life as Psalm 1 was saying like a flourishing tree that's what our king wants for us he's not trying to hold us back he's not trying to rob us of the best experiences and and achievements in life he wants us to flourish he wants us to enjoy the best life sam closes with a solemn warning verse 10 now therefore o kings be wise be warned o rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear verse 12 says kiss the sun and the kiss mentioned there as i've said i think before it's not a romantic kiss it's the kiss that a servant places gently on the hand of their master or ruler it's that kiss that says i am yours i am going to serve you and friends today that the hand of the lord jesus of king jesus is stretched out for you to kiss for you to bow down and serve it won't be outstretched forever as the psalmist warns us here his wrath is quickly kindled his wrath is quickly kindled this hand won't be stretched out forever kiss the son accept the son honor and obey the son the king while you have the opportunity and the, the psalm finishes with this wonderful promise and assurance blessed verse 12 blessed are all who take refuge in him happy joyful fulfilled blessed are all who take refuge in this king you see we need this king i was listening to a preacher just last week preaching on a different passage and he said there is no refuge from god there is only refuge in god there will be no refuge there will be no hiding place no escape from god on the day of judgment friends but there is refuge in god in christ by faith blessed are all who take refuge in him and perhaps today you would have to admit and confess that you've been lukewarm towards your king you do love him you do serve him but perhaps that service has been lukewarm we need to perhaps get our gaze off all the carry on in the political or sporting or societal realm that we're looking out at every day we need to get our eyes up onto our king again perhaps we need to put down our phones and pick up our bibles to stir our hearts and affections for our king perhaps we need to burst apart the bonds of self-improvement or lazy living or respectable sins 
and devote ourselves afresh to the King who loved us so much that he went to the cross for us. And if you have not yet kissed the hand of the King, the warning is here for you today. His wrath is quickly kindled. He is coming back, as Revelation 19 says, with a rod of iron in his hands to tread down his enemies in fury. It will be an awful day when the king returns for his enemies. But every second that he delays is an opportunity for his enemies to become his allies. So don't swipe away the hand of the king today. Kiss the hand of the king. Be blessed by the king. He is ruling and reigning and someday soon he is returning. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen.